This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Reactive Mysteries. Passenger Pigeons. Giallo and the Yellow King. And Alexander Dugan. Everyone remembers their first trip to the island of Alamarha. You mean that strange, conspiracy-ridden island off the coast of North Africa, known for its lax regulations and mysteriously authoritarian government? Uh, I thought it was in the Mediterranean. Didn't everyone? Atlas Games, the publisher of Feng Shui and Unknown Armies, is at it again with a brand new Kickstarter. This time it's a new edition of Over the Edge, the legendary role-playing game of weird urban danger. Jonathan Tweet is back at the keys, inviting us to join him in creating unique unorthodox characters ready to get into all kinds of trouble. It's the same Alamarha you always knew, only this time it's completely different. If rampant New Age occultism, gangs of baboons, twisted assassins, and mad scientists in a modern-day setting of weirdness and menace tickle your fancy, this is the Kickstarter for you. Over the Edge is now kickstarting, and you can make your pledge at atlas-games.com slash kickstartote. Offer open to humans and tulpas. Tulpas before pledging, ensure your credit card is valid and not part of the illusion. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the Gaming Hut. And here, in the Gaming Hut, all the little miniatures... They're just standing around. What's that, little miniatures? Don't you have an adventure? <laughs> Isn't what's going on, buddies? Uh, what's that? You're waiting, waiting, but waiting is bad unless it's called tension. Robin, help us out <laughs> in mysteries a million times, especially on TV, but often in other real mysteries. Uh, you'll have a situation where the uh, heroes are solving something. Let's say Mulder and Scully are out wandering around trying to fight monsters or the Winchester boys. And uh, they're like, I guess it's some kind of monster. And then the next time the monster attacks, that's when the actual clue drop happens. But between the first and the last, I mean, if it's uh, the Winchester boys, you can just gaze into their dreamy eyes. But at a table, you can't do that, Robin. How do we make that necessary lapse into exciting table play? Right. Um, and, uh, and by mentioning X-Files in particular, you're pointing out the sort of lag between what you can get away with in passive entertainment in which, uh, you don't necessarily notice that, uh, a vast majority of, uh, cases on the X-Files, Mulder and Scully do almost nothing. (laughs) (laughs) They, they just sort of amble around theorizing and then another murder happens and then, uh, you know, maybe at the end they confront the creature or get confronted. Or maybe there's a big light and everyone's like, well, I guess it was a UFO, but we'll never know. Yes, exactly. So, and it it was interesting. Uh, one of the few interesting things about the reprise, uh, seasons is that you could see the impact of uh, newer script models on it because that was some, that pattern was somewhat less in evidence that there were more episodes where they were actually uh, driving the action. And of course, driving the action is what we always expect play our characters to do but uh if we want to do this time-honored you know series of murders series of monster attacks uh, uh an early version is the first appearance of the joker in batman that's a classic one where he's bumping off a series of municipal officials and batman is just sort of 
at every murder, he gets a new bit of information, but it's really the, the Joker who's leading uh, Batman around on that. So how do we deal with the fact that players expect to be active uh, and not wait around for things to happen while still occasionally at least doing this plot line? And so the number one thing I would say is make sure that the characters may be waiting around for something to happen, but the players should never be doing that. And of course, as GM, you have the magic of the fast forward at your disposal. So you can just simply say, uh, after three days of uh, fruitless, annoying legwork, all of a sudden you get a call uh, that uh, another municipal official has been found uh, with a white face and a horrible grinning erectus in his apartment. And here's the address. And so uh, rather and you're than... like, uh, what's that white face and grinning rictus doing in your apartment, man? I don't know. I'm just a municipal official. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, and so by controlling the pacing, you can uh, always make sure that the uh, players are not twiddling their thumbs waiting for you to advance yes. uh, the timeline. Now, sort of the downside of that is that, of course, then they may feel like uh, Mulder and Scully, they've lost a little agency. They're not out doing anything and helping solve this thing. And if it's just municipal officials, yeah, sure, no one cares. But what if it's, you know, golden-haired schoolchildren? Then you care, right? Because they're schoolchildren, for goodness sake. They're darling. Right. Uh, so the uh, another solution to this problem, then, is... <laughs> oh, you were waiting for me to have one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um uh I would say that one of the things that you can do is situation where the murderer is not simply committing a series of murders to build a Riddler or Joker style puzzle. What he's doing is he's committing murders to envelop the hunters in his um uh, bizarre uh dance macabre, right? In in your standard sort of uh manhunter style. Uh not Martian, um uh the Lecter. And so the 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 people are going after the bad guy and he's killing golden haired school children or even really appealing municipal officials and and they're like, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to, we've figured out he's probably by the docks. And so we're going to go stake out the docks. And so at the moment that they do that, the killer then has to respond to them and do something, even if the killer wasn't prepared. And you get the sense, all right, maybe he killed another municipal official down at the docks, but he was sloppy because he didn't have time to set it all up. And so maybe the first time he doesn't get to decorate the scene the way he wants to. And so you get the sense that you're putting psychological pressure on him, even if murders are still happening and he's still dropping clues, which is the functional purpose of the scene, if not the structural purpose of the scene, right? Right. Um, you can also have other interesting, fun things uh, happen to uh, the player characters or be driven by the player characters in the midst of the case. So, uh, you know, you mentioned Supernatural, and there's always an emotional thing the two brothers are working out, as well as the fact that they're... <laughs> or you know, not at all this, working out. <laughs> or not at all working out. Um, uh, well, they, they work it out by the end of the episode, and they unwork it at the beginning yes. of the next one. Um, but, you know, they're in a small town that in the Midwest that looks a lot like Vancouver, and, uh, you know, in between waiting for the next monster attack, uh, they have uh, some... Uh, personal subplot that they have to work out or in something where you're just focused more on the procedural, there can be other obstacles that arise from the case that make it more challenging and distracting for the investigators to deal with the mystery. So uh, you could have the classic uh, copycat guy who sends in uh, his 
letter to the uh, to the newspaper, and then you have to go and chase that down and figure out whether this is really from the killer or uh, is from uh, a an a- amateur murder enthusiast. Or you can have your classic uh, nosy reporter, or you can have the uh, bad guy, uh, as you suggest, more actively messing with the investigators by having some other. Uh, sort of cat's paw or associate or, uh, you know, a servitor creature or what have you, whose job it is to run interference for the, uh, the main bad guy while they pl- plot their next killing. So, you know, you can have the, uh, you know, the, the ghosts come through the door or the reporter, uh, you know, uh, snap a picture of you that you don't want in the paper because you're not actually the cops and you can have other stuff that activates the sort of typical subplots that your character gets engaged in um, so that uh, you've got to juggle a whole lot of stuff and and it seems less like you're just killing time or just that the uh, GM has just fast-forwarded to the to the next interesting bit. Another thing that you can have is that the player characters have to overcome a either a related or a separate obstacle before they can focus their full attention on the monster. And in in, sub, in Supernatural, they have to overcome the obstacle of one of them being stupidly emo, and it's not Dean. But but they may have to uh, overcome either. Um, they have to get access to the case files because they're not cops, as you say, or they have to battle some other bad guy who's maybe not teamed up with the with the main killer, but is taking advantage of the chaos to to sow terror in the sort of later Batman way, where there's like two villains going on in the same movie. Um, it could also be a situation where. Where you have um, some sort of uh, institutional obstacle, like you say, um, uh, they're not cops. The police force hates them because they're vigilante monster hunters who are connected to a series of arsons. And so they have to spend interpersonal time uh, or some other kind of uh, uh, resource and ability to convince the cops that, yes, in this case, they are uniquely uh, equipped to help stop the the killer of uh municipal officials and so they um uh and and so that then allows them to move at what they consider to be their regular speed and drives it to a conclusion because they've been putting together the pieces from the newspaper reports but they can't get access to the case until they overcome such and such an obstacle that coincidentally lasts just long enough for enough information to have been produced by the murders that they can then solve it triumphantly and say see if you'd let us in from the first, we could have saved those two municipal officials' lives. And another thing that, that can be helpful is to decouple yourself from the idea of a set timeline when the murders or monster attacks or whatever it is occur, so that you just know that there's going to be a number of bad things that the bad guy does, but you're not, you haven't necessarily decided uh, which order he strikes his victims in, or even necessarily where the attacks occur. Now, of course, this Depends in part on how you've characterized the bad guy, right? If the bad guy's a werewolf, you pretty much have to have your murders happen at the full moon. Right. Because otherwise you're spoiling the fun. But in that case, you know, you can always change your werewolf lore so that the werewolf strikes at night or whatever. That if the, uh, if, if your bad guy's (laughs) a day wolf. (laughs) Yeah. If you're, if your bad guy is too constrained, uh, that can be, that can take flexibility away from you. And the same is true as, you know, what if someone who creates elaborate locked room mystery traps to kill people in, well, that limits his ability to, uh, you know, just sort of spontaneously uh, launch an attack. So you might want to go for, uh, you know, more devil may care, spontaneous, improvisational uh, murderer or monster who can uh, sort of adjust 
tactics and, and suddenly respond uh, when the, the players uh, do something. Another technique is to uh, leave leads still up in the air before the next bad thing happens. It's because if you uh, if the players investigate uh, you know all of their available leads and then have nowhere to go, they know that they're waiting for something to happen. But if they've learned, you know, at murder scene A, if they've learned that there's one clue leading to the uh, sewage plant and another clue leading to the uh, uh, greenhouse, if you have the next murder occur after the investigators go to either the sewage plant or the greenhouse, and so there's still another lead that they haven't explored, they don't yet feel like they're waiting for the next thing to happen. In that case, they're, the bad guy is accelerating their schedule and, and sort of uh, making it more difficult for them to perform the investigation because he's striking before they've gleaned every possible clue at every possible location. And then after that murder occurs, there's another possible look. Oh, wait, now there's a clue to the, the printing plant, but we haven't done the greenhouse yet. Do we do the printing plant now because it's a fresher clue or do we go back to the uh, to the greenhouse and so that way you, they don't feel that all of their choices have been exhausted and then another plot development lands on the table for them to deal with while they've been uh, you know sitting around with their feet up waiting for something to happen yeah um the secret to most situations especially in horror is to not let the players feel like they're in on it. I mean, they have to be in on it in the sense that, yes, they want to play a horror game, but the more they can predict something, unless it's a prediction that they can't do anything about, like, we know the werewolf will strike at the next full moon, and we don't have enough information. That's terrifying. But you have to not let them believe that you're simply feeding them uninteresting things in between murders. You have to make sure that the, that the other story could potentially, I mean, I, and I guess this is sort of the, the tricky part. You have to play as though the thing that's happening in between could sideline your murder plot. If it carried to its conclusion, if they are in fact, you know, uh, they have a warrant sworn out on them and they have to flee the city, or if they have in fact get killed by the Riddler while they're hunting the Joker, or if they in fact, you know, on the other hand, break through the obstacle and then can stop the Joker before he has even his second murder, much less his fifth. You have to allow that to be a real possibility at the very least in the minds of the players, or I guess at the very least in the minds of the characters, but ideally in the minds of the players. And I think for you as the GM to do that successfully, you have to at the very least have a backup B plan. What if this B plot succeeds? What if this takes over? What if, the thing that I'm doing as the B plot suddenly flips over and they can influence the A plot with it. Am I ready for that? And you at least have to be able to say, yes, look at you. You captured the Joker after only one murder. You are the greatest. And the Joker is now mad as hell at you. Um, and this is a non-capital punishment state. So good luck with that. Uh, and, and maybe that's your thing. You're setting up the thing and the Joker's like, all right, next time I'm not going to commit all my murders out in public. I'm going to put a bunch of murders and keep them secret and then reveal them one by one. That'll be my brilliant scheme. And that's the Joker and you, the GM thinking, 
you know, together, how can I make this next, my return, my, my second movie more interesting and more tense and more full of, uh, bloody, exciting clue finding. And that then lets you plot the, the skin of the next adventure. And it keeps it from being a carbon copy of the next one where it's like, well, we stopped the Joker and then we stopped the werewolf and then we stopped the metronome killer and then we stopped the metronome killer's son, Johnny metronome. And oh my God, this, pattern is super old. So being able to break that pattern also helps you design the next bunch of adventures because you have to be designing them to break the adventures in the first place, right? To have a twist about what is going on with these killings, some other new thing, so that the mystery isn't just, how do I finally catch up with this monster or villain who is one step ahead of me, but when I do catch up with them, the situation is different than I thought it was. So, you know, you think it's the Joker, but it's really a werewolf. Or you think that the, uh, you know, it's a regular set of serial killings, and then you realize that the serial killer has been uh, bumping off the sorcerers who are planning to bring about the apocalypse. Or you think that it's just a, a bunch of regular uh, random uh, monster attacks, but it turns out that the attacks are actually being directed uh, by the unconscious mind of the reporter that's been annoying you the whole time. So that uh, there is not a sense of anticlimax when you find, okay, if I finally jumped through all these hoops and finally got to uh, the confrontation and here we go. So that uh, to make sure that in that final scene where you, you, you finally catch up with them, that that's not all there is to it, that there's some other dimension that you, uh, that remains to be discovered. And even better, if you can have sort of planted enough foreshadowing clues ahead of time that may have allowed them to prep for that. So another version, the mystery might not be who is the creature, but when I find the creature, how do I kill it? What is its special means of dispatch, as we say in the Esoterrorists? Mm-hmm. And so that can be um, also something that is fun to do while you're waiting for the next body to drop. So if you know that, oh, wait, this uh, this monster is unkillable unless you have the, the sword of, of the Saint of the Sen... Uh, well, I guess we've got to find where that sword is as well as be ready to anticipate where it's next going to strike mm-hmm. or uh, deal with all the, you know, political issues of, you know, it, it's the height of holiday season and, uh, the, the land shark is, is striking, uh, this, uh, this resort town and you have to deal with the mayor and the bureaucracy so, so that there's some other, uh, goal that you are pursuing at the same time that you're chasing, uh, the creature. And uh, speaking of chasing the creature, I think that we had better chase this uh, next uh, commercial to see uh, what exciting, hopefully non-murderous segment lies on the other side. In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touch the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green 
tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity, caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Hyde, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green the role-playing game to the award-winning Gumshoe Engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green, available for pre-order now in the Pelgrane Press store. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe, what are you waiting for? The end of the world? The straw hats and the corncob pipes uh, and the unmistakable freshness of the air tell us that we have entered the History Hut. And uh, the History Hut, I think, has taken us back about a, a century and a bit in time. And uh, as we look out the window there, the sky is very blue. And, oh, wait a minute. It's filling up with uncountable dark shapes and the noon skies being blotted out. And a, a thing that we think of today as an ecological story of uh, man-made environment destruction uh, from the perspective of us here in the uh, 1850s, 1860s, all the way up to 1870, from our point of view, this is something very terrifying, perhaps even cosmically horrific, because, Ken, we're here to talk about the passenger pigeon. Dun-dun-dun! Dun-dun-dun! So, I was recently uh, reading a book called Resurrection Science by M.R. O'Connor, and uh, it deals uh, with all the various uh, much bigger than anticipated challenges in dealing with species extinction, including such things as the question of what is a species, really, as our uh, understanding of that becomes more complex. Um, and there is the thought that, you know, maybe we can use uh, passenger pigeon DNA to, to bring back the passenger pigeon, uh, but that might be kind of a, a bad idea. Can you, can you take us back in time and, and paint a picture of what it was like uh, when the passenger pigeons would come to town? Well, um, the passenger pigeons, as we all know, are big fat pigeons. And if you've ever been in a city, you've noticed big fat pigeons. And if you've ever seen the birds, you get a sense of what a bunch of big fat pigeons are like when they're on their, uh, on their uppers. And when there are tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, literally millions of big fat pigeons all in the sky above you, even if they're not particularly ticked off, uh, they can do a lot of damage. So, for example, they uh, can fly down and uh, devastate your crops. They can go bananas in um, uh, telegraph lines back in the day. Uh, they can basically blanket the earth. And uh, as we know from the rest of ecology, when a species blankets the earth, uh, probably that is the sign of something going cattywampus. And uh, we know that scientifically the passenger pigeon population remained roughly stable for about 20,000 years until good old guns came into the picture. And so the question of whether or not the uh, apocalyptic flocking behavior that we witnessed almost the instant uh, Europeans came onto the continent was the result of some other sort of uh, ecological imbalance that had happened or, or climate change or whatever else might've been going on. Hard to say, or maybe the middle part of North America just evolved to suffer a billion pigeons all the damn time. But that seems unlikely. In the book 1491, the author of that book, Charles Mann puts forward the possibility that 
the uh, passenger pigeons, in fact, experience explosive population growth after the smallpox epidemic that killed off 90% of the continent's indigenous population. Mm -hmm. So that uh, regular uh, non-firearm-driven hunting kept their numbers in check. And then when the hunters were wiped out, the uh, passenger pigeons... Uh, suddenly have this incredible increase in population and, and the incredible uh, bison herds that were seen and also nearly suffered the fate of the passenger pigeon, uh, man uh, postulates might also have been uh, the result of their natural uh, apex predator uh, humans uh, departing the scene for a while and then mm-hmm. exclusively coming yeah, which back. Which makes sense. I mean, people don't really get the, they don't get that our image of what the Indians are like from Westerns and from whatever else is in very many respects. If we said, well, what was Australia like? Let's look at this documentary, Mad Max. Um, that's the, that's a post-apocalyptic world that we walked into. And that's why it was full of horse nomads and not full of happy farmers growing corn because it used to be full of happy farmers growing corn. And then they all died of smallpox and their cultures uh, fell apart. So the same uh, thing happens as you suspect or as you suggest ecologically. I don't know if the DNA data that says that the uh, population was relatively stable can sort of break down to the to the granularity needed to say. But in the last 200 years, was it stable? Or last, I guess, 150 years, was it stable? Right, because that's sort of a, a blink of an eye. Certainly the first passenger pigeon that's illustrated by uh, a botanist or by uh, an ornithologist, I guess, is from 1731, which would be before the 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 first, the, the main smallpox epidemic in the 1770s. Um, and we have reports from Canadian explorers, uh, or French explorers who will eventually become Canadian explorers in the fullest of time, uh, seeing these flocks of, uh, these giant flocks of pigeons and killing like 10,000 of them in a single day. And uh, that seems to be hardwired into the passenger pigeon sort of behavior. It's super gregarious, even for a pigeon. And so it's, it's desire to clump up in giant flocks is innate to that species somehow. Right. And it's got another weird DNA thing going on, which is that throughout their range, which is the northeast of the continent, basically, and and the Midwest, they are the only pigeon for a long time until they get wiped out. And, you know, the regular street pigeons uh, (laughs) come in and, and fill that niche. But in all of the other... In the rest of uh, the Americas, there's all sorts of different subspecies of, of pigeons, and uh, not until uh, the passenger pigeon gets uh, utterly destroyed are there multiple species of pigeon in, in this area. And uh, as we've already suggested there, uh, they are terrifying when they appear. They're basically really big feathered locusts. <laughs> Another thing that they have going for them uh, that allows them to be this destructive and, and mass in such numbers is that they have an unusually wide range of things that they will eat. Uh, they, they're all, in addition to being, you know, feathered locusts, they're sort of feathered goats. Uh, <laughs> so their natural diet is like acorns or uh, other uh, tree nuts, but they'll eat worms, they'll eat crops, they'll, they'll if it's edible, they will eat it. And so uh, having a bunch of them swoop down onto your community, they really do wreak havoc. And there are stories of, you know, horses having heart attacks when they uh, uh, swarm overhead, uh, people having heart attacks as well. Uh, and they were initially seen as uh, yet another sign of the incredible hostility of 
the uh, American landscape to European settlers. And there's a you know a couple of movies that do a really great job of not not necessarily having passenger pigeons in them, but uh, The Revenant and also uh, Black Robe. These films give you a sense of how alien and terrifying uh, the land was to uh, early settlers. And uh, early on, the passenger pigeons, uh, you know, people would shoot them. They were delicious. But their their arrival was uh, very frightening and, and a sign of a, a sort of a, a cosmic uh, terror. I don't think people viewed it as a sign of the apocalypse so much as a sign of this the hostility of the natural world uh, toward them. Right. Uh, but if, as is suggested in resurrection science, someone someday manages to bring back the passenger pigeon, uh, that would be a great story hook for a post-apocalyptic world, right? That mm-hmm. the passenger pigeon comes back or some other form of pigeon mutates and develops the, uh, you know, the wide you know, eating tastes and gregariousness of the passenger pigeon. And the, and and the so ability that, to travel over very long distances, which the passenger yes. pigeon also can do that regular or street pigeons generally can't because they have a wider wingspan and I think a different tail shape. I, I don't yes. know if that helps, but I know they have a different tail shape because that's what science says. Yes, and, and a general reluctance to fly. Yes, <laughs> so, right. yeah. uh, you know. But in your post in your post apocalyptic environment, if cities become less amenable to the uh, relatively lazy ways of the street pigeon, you know, some of them might start to change. And we know now that evolution can be quite rapid when ecological niches change. So mm-hmm. um, to turn this into a gaming thought, you can either in your uh, post-apocalyptic North America, you can have, you know, the Nuevo passenger pigeon being a, a huge menace. And of course, it will be a, if you've got a game where you're focusing on keeping your community food stores, the passenger pigeon is terrifying, right? Because mm-hmm. they'll come and eat all of your crops and you're, you know, you, you've been busily guarding your crops against uh, the uh, the mutants uh, from the other side of the hill. And here come the passenger pigeons. And uh, it's a post-technological world, so you don't have all the ammunition you need to, to kill uh, thousands upon thousands of passenger pigeons. And you so need that you, to kill mutants. Exactly. Yes, you've got to you've got to very carefully uh, husband your ammunition. So, uh, so uh, what do you? I do? mean, what, what they did in in historical times, in in good old uh, uh, colonial times and in cowboy times, is they would build giant nets. And so they would make a big tunnel out of nets and the passenger pigeons would fly through it and then they would knock the pole down and the net would fall down and trap um, like thousands of pigeons in it. And I obviously have to do that a lot if you've got a really big flock, but eventually uh, that will that will start uh, taking uh, its toll. One one hopes anyway. Right. But but while you're all busy putting the nets, setting the nets up, that's when the mutants attack. So. Yeah, exactly. That's the problem. That's what that's that's that mutant problem. It's it's really passenger pigeons and mutants are like a symbiotic species. Exactly. Until the until the passenger pigeons go and eat the mutants crops and then well, the mutants feed on on settlers. <laughs> They don't have crops. They're mutants, Robin. Right. Pay attention. I, I guess they have a much narrower diet than the, yeah, than right. the pigeon. Um, and so you could also have a, a plot line where, uh, you know, in the modern day, the villain's plot is to bring back the passenger pigeon. And, uh, you know, there's all sorts of havoc that they would wreak today. Uh, aviation? Forget about it. Yeah. Right? Uh, if you brought back the passenger pigeon in any sort of uh, numbers, commercial flight, uh, never mind that. Yep. You know, they could, they would perch on cell phone towers. They would knock out communications. The 
strained electrical grid at the height of a summer heat wave. They would land on the transformers and, and start to destroy them. So the, uh, the return of the passenger pigeon could not just be a byproduct of the apocalypse that brings down civilization as we know it, but they could actually be the cause of, of that. And, uh, that could be, or at least that's the villain's plan that he has, you know, on the whiteboard that he shows you, he shows you his PowerPoint while he has you in the, in the trap. And then, uh, but I think it would be more, more fun to have that actually, um, start to happen yes. because well, first you, first you hear this horrific sound of screeching and hollering and you don't know what it is. And it gets louder and louder and louder until it's actually deafening as yeah. the flock of birds comes over. Because in addition to being larger and, uh, and faster, or not faster, but uh, uh, have a lar- longer range than regular pigeons. They're also louder than regular pigeons. They um, uh, make all kinds of horrible, screaming, uh, Alfred Hitchcock birds noises when they come at you or when they come at your town. They're not coming at you. They don't care. They're bigger than that. They're like Azathoth. Yeah, exactly. And they, and they blot out the sun. Mm-hmm. The sun gets dark, and that makes it harder to to get your nets or, or whatever your uh, anti-pigeon uh, device is. So... Uh, I think that would be a, a really fun... Now, of course, I, I don't want to leave the impression that the passenger pigeons needed killing. You know, they were an, an enormous nuisance. They were a threat to uh, farmers and so forth. They were tasty. They were tasty. Um, and, of course, the, the, the ecological parable still stands because throughout the uh, the height of the, the pigeon-killing times, uh, which was from about 1850 to 1870, people started to raise the possibility, you know, if we keep killing off the passenger pigeons at this rate. And I know they're jerks, but <laughs> if we just keep doing this, we'll wipe out the passenger pigeon. And even, you know, in the 19th century, nobody wanted to kill off an entire species. But, you know, you, you can go back into the historical record and time and time again, uh, there would be the people saying, well, you know, maybe we ought to lay off and, you know, let a few of these guys, to, there might be some sort of purpose to them. And, you know, if you look at them, they're they're much prettier than other pigeons. They're sort of but, you know, they're like badass morning doves. They're kind of cool. You know, maybe we should have a few of them still around. But uh, someone would always say, it is impossible to think that these passenger pigeons, which are known in such a phenomenal quality, there is no possibility that we, mere mankind, with our fusillade of Remingtons, could possibly uh, wipe out the passenger pigeon, which, of course, uh, is exactly what happened. The last uh, one was shot in the wild in uh, 1901. And they made it another 13 years in captivity before the last uh, captive uh, passenger pigeon died in uh, 1914. Or did he? Is he plotting his revenge? Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. I think um, in the context of enormous uh, flocks of birds up to no good, we should mention that, yes, uh, you can get a Lovecraft connection with your passenger pigeon because, at the very least, the Wyandotte Indians uh, believed that the passenger pigeon contained the souls of the dead and that they had, a, and this is according to, I don't want to say that anthropology in the 19th century was all dodgy, but I'm crossing my fingers and saying this was probably pretty dodgy, that they would hunt down the passenger pigeons and eat them to restore the ghosts of their own people to their town as opposed to letting them fly away uh, to the next city or the next city, the, the next, um, uh, the, the next area. And so first of all, it raises the interesting question. How can you tell which ones have your family ghosts in them? But the larger question is, yeah, if the passenger pigeons are full of uh, death, then their return may also bring back a haunting. Yes. That, that is definitely too cool to check. 
it does <laughs> also sound to me like it belongs to the genre of uh, uh, things that uh, indigenous peoples told anthropologists to see if they would write it down, <laughs> which is a well-known uh, phenomenon in anthropology. Yeah. Uh, but for our purposes of uh, making uh, passenger pigeons even more terrifying than they originally were, I think that is a, a great uh, detail that it might be, you know, that uh, uh, they might have a an collective hive mind animal uh, memory at any rate of the last time they came to town and uh, how many of their pals got caught in a net. And uh, maybe they might just be uh, acting a little more Hitchcocky than they ordinarily would because uh, like crows do in, in real actual life, crows hold a grudge. So uh, what if our passenger pigeons, all thousands and thousands and thousands of them uh, hold a grudge against Or what if so, uh, they they have a, uh, the reason they're so communal and f- in such big numbers is that they're actually a distributed neural net. And so each tiny little pigeon brain is only a tiny little pigeon brain, but it's a processor in the enormous uh, group intelligence that is the passenger pigeon hive mind. And yeah, when you shoot a zillion passenger pigeons, you sort of lobotomize the hive mind and even kill it. But it's still present out there in the noosphere in the Rupert Sheldrake morphogenetic field. And when the passenger pigeon comes back, the, you know, the little red Terminator eye wakes up on it. And now it's looking for it, it's looking for revenge. Well, on that note of avian terror, I think it's time for us to flee to the next segment. The werewolves of Dacia? They are the descendants of the other son, uh, Romulus's twin. That sounds Re- fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume One of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at Drive Through RPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately, or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F E N I X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix volumes one to three. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. Protect this podcast from hellish bird swarms alongside such Patreon backers as... Nostra Dunwich. Yadge from Edinburgh. Tristan Knight. Ash Jackson is the Scrollbard. And Frank King. The whir of the projector, the dust motes dancing in the, in the beams, the whatever that is underneath our feet as we move to our seats in the middle... Tell us that we are once more nestling down in the plush recliners of the Cinema Hut. And in the Cinema Hut today, Patreon backer Timothy Corum wants to know about 
giallo, comma, especially as it would inform a king in yellow game. And I don't know if Timothy Coram is making a arch pun, but I will give Timothy Coram credit. Good arch pun, Timothy Coram, because, of course, giallo comes from the Italian word for yellow, which used to refer to the color that crime novels were bound in, but as we all know, actually refers to a certain tattered monarch. So, Robin, do you want to go at giallo, or do you want to... I guess we should start with giallo, Let's right? Let's go at giallo first. Um, so, uh, giallo is uh, one of sort of the the, the great trinity of uh, Italian exploitation uh, subgenres that flourished in the uh, late 60s and, and early and up to the mid-70s, uh, along with the, the spaghetti western and uh, the uh, polizio teschi. And uh, a giallo is a uh, film that blends and, in fact, in that case, extends the uh, gore and horror and revulsion of the horror genre uh, with a more mundane, crime-oriented uh, plot line. And so uh, the, the supernatural uh, is not uh, overtly part of the, uh, the giallo genre. Earlier in the early 60s, there were a lot of uh, gothics, and you can see um, Mario Bava, who is sort of the, the, the grandpappy of the giallo, uh, start to move toward the giallo in some of his anthology films where, you know, one segment would be a, uh, a, a gothic, uh, horror story and then there would be sort of a modern one with, uh, ultra sleek, 60 chic Italian designs and, uh, uh, gorgeous, uh, fashion model looking actresses in their, uh, swank apartments being menaced by, uh, Man in Black, uh, a black loved killer. Yes, and then uh, this then uh, gives birth to the slasher film, uh, one of Bava's films, uh, Bay of Blood, aka Twitch of the De- Death Nerve. Um, the middle portion of that is basically the template for Friday the Thirteenth, where uh, a bunch of bourgeois over sex teenagers show up in this uh, area where the killings are occurring and they get uh, wiped out in uh, what were then cutting edge gore effects uh, and today are, uh, you know, uh, less disturbing uh, in, not only because you can see the primitive rubber and foam latex of the flesh being uh, rent, but also the, the blood is, uh, you know, a, a bright zowie blood color, but at the time was uh, quite disturbing. Um, yeah. Another, uh, and of course the, the other, sort of main director of uh, Giallo is Dario Argento, who I'll let you talk about for a while. Yeah, Dario Argento sort of made his bones as a Giallo director. That's where he created the sort of thing that when you think Dario Argento, you think that. So Dario Argento doesn't in, didn't invent the Giallo, but he sort of was one of its great exponents. So the bird with the crystal plumage is it's a, uh, 1970, which is not super early for Giallo. As you say, Bava was making proto-Giallos in, in even the early 60s. Um, but 70 is sort of the break point where, I guess, Argento says, this is a thing about style and unease. It is not a thing necessarily about uh, story or narrative uh, momentum. And... He does, uh, Suspiria in 1977, which is a, a classic of being scared by things that are horrifying, but that only impressionistically make up a story. Uh, and then as he sort of moves through the Jello era and the Jello era sort of dies behind him, 
Argento occasionally can apply that old uh, sense of style to more conventional stories, but because he began in that way, his story sense is um, uh, it's it's well, it's let's say it's it's less it's it's not Hitchcockian. Let's just put it that way. But his sense of, of visual style and what the camera should be doing, what the soundtrack should be doing, uh, remains. So um, you know, his very very early giallos are well worth watching both as films and as examples of giallo. So Cat of Nine Tails, uh, Four Flies on Gray Velvet, and then definitely um, uh, Deep Red, which is, uh, to many people's uh, understanding, the, 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 the peak of giallo. I don't know that I say that, but I really like Deep Red. And then Suspiria is, again, people have introduced the supernatural into giallo before, but Suspiria sort of takes uh, the supernatural and turns it up to 11 because... In many giallos, it seems like the guy's uh, supernatural in the same way that it seems like um, uh, Michael Myers is supernatural in Halloween, where they call him the boogeyman and a vengeful spirit and this, that, and the other. But he's actually just, you know, a really dedicated babysitter killer who, it turns out, is, uh, you know, uh, hard to shoot with a small caliber pistol. Um, and by the time that you get to Suspiria, the giallos have been playing on this uh, as you say, gothic tension of, is it the supernatural? Is it merely human evil? So intensely and with such a, uh, Italian disregard for, um, uh, nailing things down that you can read almost all giallos as supernatural horror. If that's how you want to watch them, because they certainly pay it back in terms of the music and in terms of the, uh, of the effect on the, on the characters that you're watching on the screen, that their terror is the same, uh, uh, rhetoric of terror as it would be if it was actually, uh, a revenant or something haunting them. Right. And personally, um, I, I find that I, um, strongly react one way or another to a lot of the giallo because, uh, just like the police, you know, the, uh, the sort of subversive cop movies, uh, the, uh, sort of Marxist nihilist ones I find interesting, whereas the ones that are just purely nihilist or, or misanthropic or misogynist are sometimes a little hard to take. And yeah, I mean, they certainly, we should say <laughs> before everyone rushes out to get giallos, I think they're all misogynist. I mean, whether they're Marxist or not, I mean, you just, yeah. uh, they, they take Edgar Allan Poe's dictum that the only true subject for literature is the death of a beautiful woman and they turn it up to 11. I mean, yes, the, the, the torture and tormenting yeah, and the, terrorizing. The, uh, the, and the, 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 these movies exist because that is both horrifying to right thinking people and fascinating to the horrible part of us that always uh, uh, exists and will never be uh, expunged. And it's that tension between avidity and, and repulsion that I think creates that giallo tension that is specific to it. I mean, the, the babysitter murdering of your slasher film, uh, you might think that, well, that's, that's over sexualized misogyny, uh, uh, by far, but no, John, John Carpenter is, uh, you know, um, uh, he, he's C- Catherine Bigelow compared to the giallo directors. Um, these guys are hardcore. So if you are not ready to sort of, except that this is going to happen on your screen, do not watch them because they are not made for, for people to say, Oh, well that was all right. I'm done now. They are made to sort of stick in your, in your pineal gland and never let you go. Right. Uh, And they arise from Italian pulps and Italian uh, crime comics, both of which uh, famously went way further than their equivalents in, in other countries. And also from the fact that this was their selling point of Italian exploitation movies was that they went uh, further than anything. So, you know, and of course, 
you know, the, the ultimate expression of that is like cannibal Holocaust. So they were, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, that, that was their niche is that if you were going, uh, you know, to see an Italian, uh, slasher or a horror movie that you were going to see something that was exceptionally harsh and was really going to uh, surprise you. Um, that caveat out of the way, there have been, uh, different giallo revivals, uh, over the years. In fact, Argento did uh, one called Giallo with Adrian Brody and in the great tradition of Italian exploitation film, they didn't pay Adrian Brody for being in it and he had to sue them. <laughs> um, so that's, that's a late example of, of something that was, uh, quite, uh, commonplace in, in that, uh, sort of submarket. But at any rate, um, as you suggest, a lot, a lot of these films, uh, and, uh, the later horror films of, of Lucio Fulci as well, experience a breakdown in basic logic and become weird and dreamlike in a way that segues us into the Yellow King, uh, because, uh, you know, that, that the events in these films do not make sense in the conventional way that we would expect them to, even in an American made, you know, teenage campers being systematically slaughtered movie. Um, and so in that breakdown of rationality, which often includes there being a whole bunch of different murderers. Yeah. That you think it's one killer and it turns out there's a zillion of them. Yeah. There's like, you know, everybody who is engaged in this real estate scam trying to take over, uh, you know, this particular beachfront property, which yeah. is... It's like Old Man Withers was also slaughtering people. Right. It's like, <laughs> and they're also all scythe killers. Yeah, <laughs> or, right. Or, well, one's a hammer killer and one's a, mm-hmm. an impaling killer. Let's not tweak twi- twi- <laughs> We can for, go down that particular rabbit hole yeah. for way too long. Yeah. And so that brings us to uh, The Yellow King, which is a, about a breakdown in rationality, that the world... Uh, after, especially after people read, uh, the play, The King in Yellow is beginning to lose its bearings. And so, um, you could definitely do a, a sort of a, a giallo type situation in a secluded locale where there's a bunch of different people and you're going in as the investigators and it's like, okay, there's horrible murders. We got to find out which of these people read the play and is therefore uh, lost their uh, grip on reality and is now murdering people with a, a lawnmower blade. And then you get into it and it's like, well, actually four or five different people in this area have, have read the book. They passed it around. And, uh, you know, there's a, a lot of sorting out to do uh, before, uh, you know, the, the body count has, has fully uh, racked its way up. And, and that can be, a great uh, twist to throw in front of the player characters because, of course, they assume there's only one uh, slasher killer at work. Well, now there's just there's a whole bunch of them and they're uh, working at cross purposes and, and you've got to sort them all out. And by adding the irrationality of the king in yellow to the plot line, you then make it make more sense yeah, <laughs> than right. almost any other uh, giallo. But you want to, you know, in the meantime, play up the unreality and the dreamlike quality. Um, and one of the ways to do that, of course, is uh, like all of the, uh, almost all of the Italian exploitation movies of this period, the music is way better than the film. Oh yeah, the music is always in- incredibly good. Right, and it, and it has its sort of special uh, feel to it because it's not just uh, super cool seventies uh, lounge music or even super cool seventies Morricone music. It's the lounge music or the Morricone, but including discordant elements and sort of weird unspoken vocals and, and kinds of uh, uh, strange musical effects that create a, a feel of its own self. And the, the notion of using the king in yellow um, to indicate 
uh, or the music, the music to indicate the presence of the king to in, in, indicate the Carcosa nature. Because of course, what's the literal first thing in the King Yellow? It's a song. It's Casilda's song. And so, um, the notion that there's a musical element to the King in Yellow, I think adds a great deal of fun and flair and will pull your players into the Giallo sensibility, especially if you can find, um, a Giallo soundtrack or two to play, um, uh, uh while they're investigating it. Another thing that you can use the irrationality of the Giallo, the Giallo, a lot of them have scenes where the, the beautiful woman will have a nightmare that she is being murdered and then wake up and the nightmare will have been crazily over the top, even nuttier than the rest of the Giallo. And then she'll wake, but you can't tell that it's a nightmare when you're watching it because it could just be the next scene. She'll wake up and she'll call the usually American actor who is not being paid as you impute and say, you have to come now. I've, I've learned something about the killer. And he comes and she says, I just had a terrible nightmare. And being an American, he's like, that's crazy talk. And then things out of her nightmare start showing up in the movie because a, the directors want to reuse all those sets and effects and B, because that's how dreams work in the Giallo world is they, you, a beautiful woman has them and they come out and they, and they uh, overtake the world. Again, that is classic King and Yellow material, right? Right. Uh, so uh, a bunch of footnotes. Uh, first of all, you can tell whether the actor got paid if he's dubbed in his own voice. <laughs> he he <laughs> right. stuck around to do the dubbing because he, he got paid. As far as finding uh, the music goes, uh, in the world of uh, Spotify and other streaming services, that's easier than it has ever been. And so instead of having to uh, track down and pay 25 bucks for a CD, you can get a ton of this stuff uh, fairly easily. Uh, the... A uh, compilation that I would strongly recommend is Gothic Dramas, uh, which is a collection of the Morricone horror soundtracks that are as you describe. And Morricone used his horror soundtracks to fully indulge the side of him that was interested in modern experimental uh, 20th century music. So as you suggest, there's a lot of atonal stuff and a lot of found sound and, and so forth. And, and that uh, is... Um, extremely disturbing if you play it in the background and, uh, and very uh, much a, 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 a sort of a yellow king uh, situation. Um, and Morricone is not the only uh, composer of these soundtracks. Uh, the other great Italian com- film composers of the period, uh, Piero Piccioni, uh, the uh, Fabio Bixi team, Risordolani, they all also worked in, in this format. And then there's the band Goblin, uh, which did the soundtracks yeah. for uh, the, for Suspiria uh, and a lot of the uh, mid-period Argento right. stuff, and Pino Donaggio, who also worked with uh, John Carpenter. Uh, yeah. So those those things. I, mean, I think Goblin almost deserves its own little special place because it's it's synth in addition to everything else that it is, and so yeah, it's, it's bananas. It's, it's clear, yeah. It's much more like a rock, uh, a prog rock band doing a, doing horror mm-hmm. soundtracks, and it has its own. Uh, very distinct strangeness. Um, so, uh, before everybody just goes off to Spotify and creates a whole bunch of playlists, I think it's time for us to, uh, uh move on to the next uh, segment before either of us takes a lawnmower blade to the head. Boy. 
born of the U.S. government's 1928 raid on the degenerate coastal town of Innsmouth, Massachusetts, the covert agency known as Delta Green opposes the forces of darkness with honor but without glory. Delta Green agents fight to save humanity from unnatural horrors, often at a shattering personal cost. In Delta Green, the role-playing game, you play those agents. Fight to save human lives and sanity from threats beyond space and time. The long-whispered-of slipcase set has now shipped. This stunning edition includes two full-color rulebooks. The Any Award-winning Agents Handbook features rules for creating agents and playing the game. Gear! Combat! Dossiers! The Handler's Guide for the game moderator who presents the mysteries and horrors of the Cthulhu Mythos. Terrible Secrets of the Intelligence World and of eons pre-human. Percentile-based rules compatible with 20 years' worth of Delta Green scenarios and sourcebooks. A universe of cosmic terror lurks just out of sight. Can your agents stand against it? It's time once more to wend our way up the creakety cobweb stairs. We'll uh, stop on the landing and we'll wave to the glowering portrait of Madame Blavatsky and then head on through to the Edwardian parlor where waits the consulting occultist. And this time he's uh, here to tell us not about a uh, occultist of uh, the distant past or in the 19th century, but uh, someone who's uh, very much active and influential today. In fact, a rough contemporary of your podcasters. He was born in 1962. Uh, he is a Russian. Uh, he is uh, billed as a philosopher, but much of his philosophy is very distinctly occultic, uh, and he has a lot of uh, political influence and is thought of as a, a grand uh, political thinker and uh, is popular in modern-day Russia, and uh, I think we know from that that some of this is pretty darn ominous. So, Ken, mm -hmm. we are here to talk about Alexander uh, Dugin. Uh, so uh, he uh, is sort of an interesting character in that he went through every possible extreme, fringy social movement before he created one of his own. Uh, and uh, he began as a Soviet-era punker, uh, and was exposed to uh, chaos magic, and uh, that's very much still part of his uh, whole uh, uh, occult and political agenda. So why don't you uh, pick up the story of Alexander Dugin and, and why we should be uh, aware of him and his activities. Okay, uh, Dugin, um, as you say, began as a rebel against uh, Soviet uh, authority, um, so far, so good. His dad was a, uh, in the GRU, which strikes me as a terrible opportunity to be a rebel, but there you are. And in fact, when he it, was arrested. It's always, the, it's always the bourgeois privileged ones who. Right, are, yeah. It's always those kids. These are those, whatever the Soviet version of Trustafarian is, that's what he was. So, um, uh, when he gets arrested for reciting a anti-revolutionary poem, his dad, of course, uh, gets demoted at work and can never be promoted and it sort of destroys his dad's career. Um, he doesn't go, to the gulag, he gets sort of a, a, a wrist slap, I guess, because his dad is still in the GRU by the KGB, and they're like, don't do it again. But he is not allowed to go to college, he's not allowed to um, uh, work in any white-collar field. Basically, it's like, yep, uh, one strike and you're out, that's how the Soviet Union works. So, he, uh, as he says, um, had a youthful flirtation, or a um, uh, transgressive a theatrical interest in Nazism, in National Socialism. And even now that he says that it was just a thing you get into in college, I mean, I got into George Thorogood in college, so whatever, his uh, modern-day movement 
uh, the uh, youth uh, Eurasian movement, Eurasian, Eurasian youth movement, um, wears black shirts with Sam Brown belts. So uh, he says, no, that's the pro-Tsarist Black Hundred dress from before 1917. And I say, sure it is. Right. That's why when you designed the flag of your political party, it's a black hammer and sickle in a white circle on a red field. Because that was pre-Tsarist too. No, it wasn't. So he's got, you know, you, you get that Nazism in you. It just sort of sticks. Yeah. And, uh, and of course, the other emblem of his movement is a nine headed star made of eight headed star. Eight, is it eight? Okay. Eight yeah. headed star. And you're wondering, Hey, wait a minute. Is that the, that's not the chaos symbol from Michael Moorcock, is it? And you bet it is. Yep. Uh, because, uh, this is, it's blood and souls for Ariok people. Where Ariok is understand, understood as the great Russian motherland. Yeah. And so, <laughs> Uh, you know, anybody who's trying to bring stuff from Michael Moorcock into reality, that's trouble, man. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and it's not an accident. That's, that's where it comes from through the interest of, uh, you know, chaos magicians, uh, in, uh, Moorcock. And, uh, he sees himself very much as a chaos agent. But of course, it's chaos in the name of authoritarianism because you need, uh, chaos in order to destroy the current world order. So that the new world order can emerge. Um, yes. He made his bones in the Samizdat and weirdo communities back in the day by doing a translation of Julius Evola, who we met in a previous segment, um, and uh, fell hard, as I said, uh, 20-somethings who are not really well-read will do, uh, to Julius Evola. And so he really... Still, even though he um, uh, he no longer has overt uh, Hitler kitsch, he still has very much that Evolan goal of tradition of tearing away the, the 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 face of modernity, which he calls liberalism, to reveal the pure and wonderful soul. In this case, of the Russian people, uh, uh, Evola would have said, you know, Indo-European people, but I guess it's agree to disagree day here in Evola Club. Um, he th- he is also. Uh, famous, I think most famous in America for having written a work of geopolitics that is called Foundations of Geopolitics. Um, and in the Foundations of Geopolitics, he has, uh, taken a theory by the Edwardian geopolitician Halford Mackinder, which was made up, uh, not coincidentally in Britain that said, the maritime powers, which Halford McKinder meant Britain and, all right, sure, America, could only be opposed by a continental power that didn't need the oceans for trade, and the only one like that was Russia. Now, McKinder was just making a sort of straight-up, almost a bloodlessly mathematical point. He wasn't, like, agitating for war with Russia. He didn't he saying, even mention Atlantis in his right, metaphor. He did not ever mention Atlantis. Um, he had cool terms, like, because Russia was the world island. Uh, Eurasia was the world island. That's a neat term. Um, but... Uh, but McKinder just said, look, Germany, Schmermany, the thing you got to worry about is someone unifying the world island against us. And it's not going to be Germany. It's going to be Russia. And modulo one or two bits of math in a couple of dodgy decades. Not wrong. So um, uh, Dugan read uh, McKinder or he read Haushofer, who was a German geopolitician who read McKinder. And Haushofer is one of those guys who 
when Nazis were a, a big thing uh, in the 30s and 40s, everyone, if there had been Vox back in 1940, it would have been publishing, you know, how Karl Haushofer explains Hitler. And I think there is a lot of that going on with Alexander Dugan, because Dugan, while awful and while saying, you know, Russia should expand to its former Soviet borders and beyond, is not saying anything that every Russian general staff hasn't said since the time of Peter the Great. Um, but people are saying, oh, he's the reason that uh, Putin invaded Ukraine. It's like, no, he's not. Putin invaded Ukraine because it makes sense for Putin to invade Ukraine. That's that's the natural uh, arc of uh, Russian or Soviet expansion, as everyone knows at the time. So uh, he got fired, for example, from his uh, position at Moscow State University. And if he were really the Amanence degrees tugging at the sleeve of Putin, had all the influence he pretends he, he, he has, he wouldn't have gotten fired. That wouldn't have happened. So I think in, a, in some cases, people are reading Dugin as this shadowy Rasputin-y figure and certainly has the creepy beard to go with it. And he says things like, ours is the party of death. Yeah, which is, you know, I'm not saying he's not disconcerting. a disconcerting. I'm just saying... I don't think that you need to ask to assume magical creepiness to explain Russia invading the Ukraine, which it literally has done probably a dozen times in uh, Russian history. Right. So but that doesn't also <laughs> doesn't preclude him from being uh, influential in saying the kinds of things. Yes. He certainly that, has uh, had an effect on the public opinion in Russia. His book was a bestseller, despite being a 600 page tome about, uh, geopolitics. Um, he has met Putin. He has talked to members of the Russian general staff. Um, he is in that weird Russian way where they have intellectuals who say legitimately crazy things and everyone just sort of says, huh. Interesting point. Instead of go away, stop embarrassing us. I mean, in America, Steve Bannon is a hilarious fringe figure, was always a hilarious fringe figure. And when he became a part briefly of Trump's operation, it was like a ding on Trump, like we needed more of those. But in Russia, Dugan, uh, the, the, the Bannon of Russia, Dugan, is way more influential and way less openly mocked in the street than uh, the uh, equivalent figure would be in the Anglosphere. Right. And the things that he uh, have, has laid out in his books, some of them are very practical descriptions of uh, what it is that Russia and Russophiles uh, have been doing in their uh, struggle against uh, liberal democracy. So he talks about hoaxed news stories and the power of those and cooked up some uh, powerful uh, hoaxes himself against uh, the, the, as propaganda against the Ukraine. And he uh, describes himself as an expert in conspirology. Yeah, he actually got hired by a magazine to be their in-house conspiracy theorist, right. which... I, I, I got to tell you, that's a good gig. If you can get it, I mean, I had it for like twelve years, and it, was, it worked out pretty well for we, me. We but, may still currently have that gig, uh, as our list, as our Patreon backers may attest. But, but 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 no one in the general staff was saying, "Ken, I like the cut of your jib." <laughs> yes, uh, but of course, we're we're not running a party of death here. No, we are not. We're running a party of 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 love. Right, and it is uh, that his mixture of geopolitics and political agitation and uh, a strategy to achieve a greater Russian synergy is part and parcel of his uh, occult thought and belief that right. yeah. he no longer uses the term uh, chaos magic. He calls it active metaphysics, mm-hmm. uh, but it's chaos magic. It's about uh, willing uh, realities uh, into being. And uh, you know, that that is uh, something that, uh, 
Trump movement and Trump himself have uh, have conjured into being. Just good old Sorel mass myth. Yes. The commies invented it and they didn't use it right, so he's going to do it. The, the the other thing that I think uh, people uh, would like to know is that most of our listeners, I suspect, are living in Atlantis, according to him. That uh, the, uh, the America specifically and the Western world generally are Atlantis. And uh, often in your New Age groups, you will find Atlantis thought of as a good thing. But uh, Dugan identifies Russia with, I guess, Athens or with some other magical solar kingdom that has nothing to do with Atlantis or I hates it was Atlantis. The other way Again, thought, Atlantis was uh, a solar kingdom. So I thought uh, he wants Russia to be lunar and, and he's fighting the solars. No, no. He wants Russia to be solar. Solar is good. Lunar is bad. It's just like, um, uh, it, it's just like, uh, Evola. Right. Another fun thing about his, uh, beliefs, he has invented, I mean, we all know about the fifth column. That's, uh, Franco gave us that, um, the notion that there is a, a shadowy bunch of, of Democrats and liberals and whatnot working against the nation. Uh, Dugan has gone Franco one better and invented the sixth column, which is the people who pretend to be, uh, in favor of the nation and are, all nationalists just like him, but secretly are planning to turn liberal and Western the instant they get a chance. So it's even better than the right. fifth column. As soon as they get in power, they're going to lock him up because he's yeah. a nut. And so because he's, he's going to lay the groundwork for that. Uh, because uh, traditionally, uh, authoritarians may uh, uh, play with the occult as they're rising to power, but once they gain power, they kick the occultists out uh, right. because they're... Uh, crazy banana people. Yeah, if, if if a Duganist regime actually shows up in Russia, Dugan is going to wind up floating face down in the Bosphorus just like Rudolf Sabatendorf did once the Nazis, uh, you know, uh, really took over. In fairness, they just made him go live in Istanbul and then he was found floating at the end of the war. But my larger <laughs> point is the uh, occult crazy person who helps shepherd you to power almost never gets to stick around and run things. Well, if that's not a conclusive uh, note, I don't know what is. So I think it's time for us to uh, hang up our podcast hats for another week. Uh, next week, uh, you will hear us talking to each other in the same actual room in the uh, acoustically challenged uh, confines of uh, the uh, embassy suites, because we're going to be uh, avoiding uh, setup, uh, as, as is our want, uh, just before Gen Con. Uh, so uh, uh, tune in next week to hear the results of that, which will drop uh, way after Gen Con. Uh, but uh, until then, uh, we will wave you a, a fond farewell and get back to our, our checklists and packing and all the little tasks that we need to do for the big show. See you all there. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Asphagelm. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Apple. Stab, stab, stab. <laughs> Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Stick a finger in the eye of Arioch by joining such... Patreon backers as Hyperlexic, Jason Denon, Michael Manival, Ruth Tillman, and Steve Sigetti. Snag Ken and Robin Apparel and other erudite merchandise at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Wear such shirts as Nod Knowingly if you're a Tulpa. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again we will talk about stuff.